Father in heaven, we thank you so much for light and truth, and we pray that you'd help us to walk in the light. We know that you've given us sometimes a hard teaching, something that might challenge us and, and contradict our preconceived notions, and we just pray that you would help us along in that journey of coming closer to you and closer to your plan for us, for our church, for our children, for our community. In Jesus' name, amen. This session is entitled Undoctrinated, and the subtitle is How Home Education and Schools of the Prophets Will Produce the Last Generation. Now, you might say, well, I, you know, I don't have kids in the home. I'm not involved with education at all, and so does this matter to me? How about this quote? One who has long been our instructor was speaking to the people. He said, the subject of education should interest the whole Seventh-day Adventist body. So if you're a Seventh-day Adventist in here today, you're going to be familiar with all the different books and citations. If you're coming in as sort of a guest, we've got like a pile of books on education that were written at the time of the founding of our church, and we look to these as authoritative in our midst. And when I went through and I mowed through every page of those books, education, fundamentals of Christian education, counsels to parents, teachers, and students, you name it, all of them, it was a journey and a joy ride of a lifetime. I loved it, right? I'm sitting on airplanes flying around doing media on the brain seminars, got to do something productive when you don't have Wi-Fi, right? So I get out the books. If you're at the morning session, you know you actually have better comprehension from paper books. And so when you read this quotation, it says the decisions regarding the character of our schoolwork should not be left wholly to principals and teachers from Testimonies, Volume 6. This is something we all take an interest in. The topic of the preparing of our children to be the ones who present the final message of warning and hope and the three angels' messages to the world. If you missed the morning session over in uh, the commons, a powerful quotes from Adventist Home from the Great Controversy talking about the role of children in the last days. I don't have time to review all that. That's on Raising the Remnant if you go through that series from the ABC. But basically, uh, in, in counsels to parents, teachers, and students, there's a statement that jumped out at me. And it said, every man or woman in our ranks, whether a parent or not, should be intensely interested in the Lord's vineyard, meaning, meaning the children and in reaching these children and reaching the world through the children. And, and there's another statement that, that really applied to me in my journey. In the book Education, it says that our ideas of education take too low and too narrow of a range. Now, I grew up, as those of you who were at the last session know, I, I lived in school from age 3 to age 33. That was my full-time gig as a kid from preschool all the way up through being a teacher for 11 years and then quitting that on going on to doing seminars and full-time ministry presently. But that 30-year that, that, that experience gave me a template, a viewpoint. It gave me a download into my brain on what school is and what education is. Now, the book Education confronts us and it says our ideas of education take too narrow and too low of a view. So what you're about to see today will probably challenge preconceived notions about true education. Indeed, they did for me and it was hard as a teacher. But um, you know, I always used to think the purpose of education was basically produce good citizens who will be hardworking contributors to a market economy so that you can have prosperity, you can have a stable republic, you can have people with a decent character so that you can have a respectable society and have people be able to be self-sufficient and self-reliant. And those are good things in a society, in a free society you need those, but there's a whole lot more to the subject of education from a spiritual standpoint. And let's get into that. It says, in the highest sense, the work of education 
and the work of redemption are one. Huh. So anybody who says, I'm not interested in the topic of education because I'm out of school and I don't have kids and you know, all of this, it's, uh, it's irrelevant to me. Well, whoa, wait a minute. The, the work of education and the work of redemption are one. And I hope everybody's interested in the work of redemption. You know, we never really graduate, do we, from true education. We're always growing in the Lord's service, always becoming more and more like Jesus each day. That's the work of redemption in our life. That's the work of true education as well. They are synonymous, one and the same thing. Now, I want to tell you the story of true education. Yesterday, we had a horrific story of, of the, the worldly education and how it's controlling the minds of children, indoctrinating them with false worldviews, breaking apart the family, doing all these, dumbing down the population. I mean, it was a pretty alarming history when I studied through that as a historian. But now as a, as a, as a believer in the Bible, when I look at this incredibly beautiful narrative, the most inspiring picture of God's plan for education and for our children. It starts in the Garden of Eden, in fact. And this is all plain and clear in the book Education. Read the book Education for yourself. It's not meant just for teachers and school personnel. Read that book. It's called Education by Ellen G. White. The system of education established in Eden centered in the family. So the origins here, let's go way back to the beginning. What was the original school? The family. The system of education established in Eden centered in the family. Adam was the son of God. And it was from their father that the children of the highest received instruction. Theirs, in the truest sense, was a family school. In the divine plan of education adapted to man's condition after the fall, also here, Christ ordained that men and women should be his representatives. The family was the school, and the parents were the teachers. So if you had to give a name or a term to that, you might say that that would be called home education or God's original Eden home school. But we got to be careful with the term. If we just get our, in our mind the cultural viewpoint of what homeschool looks like, you'd probably conclude that this means taking the exact same curriculum and routine and schedule from the, the worldly schools and just putting it into the kitchen table setting in, at home instead of in a desk at school. But what God means by education is something radically different. We're going to see that. But so far we've got the location, we've got orig- God's original idea here that the parents were the educators of the children. That was in Eden, God the Father being the educator, and then after the fall, the parents in the home being the educators and the family school. Now, in early ages, we see the same thing. Oh, by the way, before I say that, Child Guidance 294 says that this system that was established at the beginning was God's plan, his his template, his program for all after time as well. And now we're going to follow that timeline, what happened after time after the, the early Eden period. It says, in early ages, with the people who were under God's direction, life was simple. They lived close to the heart of nature. Their children shared in the labor of the parents and studied the beauties and mysteries of nature's treasure house. 
Doesn't this sound so nice? Like, I want to live there. (laughs) And in the quiet of field and wood, they pondered those mighty truths handed down as a sacred trust from generation to generation. Such training produced strong men. What kind of training was that? Well, it was a country setting. It was in the beauties of nature. It was families united and connected one to another, receiving the truths from generation on down. But then it also, you read in Education, page 41, in ordinary life, the family was both a school and a church. So reading on, in God's plan for Israel, so that was in, in early ages, what we just heard. So let's fast forward now to the, to the time of God's plan for Israel. After the patriarchal times of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, you have now God's plan for Israel. Every family had a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. And no devising of men has ever improved upon that plan. You see, God has a blueprint, doesn't he? He has a divinely ordained program for what is best for the development for children. And it is working with their hands. It's being outdoors. It's all of these things. And most ideally here in the home setting, as you've read in both Eden after the fall and then the patriarchal times. And that was God's plan for Israel as well. In the home, the home and the school were one, it says in fundamentals. It says in the place of stranger lips, the loving hearts of the father and mother were, given, were to give instruction to their children. I have to just pause right there on that and the concept of in the place of stranger lips. As a teacher for, for a, a period of time in different kinds of schools, public schools, charter schools, non-Adventist Christian schools, and then the last three years in, in the Adventist education system, what I, was, what I was surprised by most as a teacher, what I was surprised by most was how few of the parents wanted to get to know their children's teacher. And I was essentially a stranger to so many of them. And that's what reminded me of this in this quote. It says, the home and the school were one in the place of stranger lips. The loving hearts of the father and the mother were to give instruction to their children. Such was the training of, so here's quite a list of those who were educated in the home. Moses, of Samuel, of David, of Daniel. Such too was the early life of Christ. Such was the training by which the child Timothy learned from the lips of his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois, the truths of holy writ. You see, these people in the Bible times did not outsource their parenting and training and education of their children. They knew that it was their responsibility. In our culture, our children are basically raised by the entertainment media and by strangers in public schools with these yellow buses that carry them off each day to be raised by people who have a completely different worldview. And, uh, you know, the Lord has some ideas to speak into this situation that we have, a much more beautiful and better program. Further provision was made for the instruction of the young. By the establishment of, and here's for the first time we read about, schools. The schools of the prophets. If a youth was eager to obtain a better knowledge of the scriptures, to search deeper into the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and to seek wisdom from above, that he might become a teacher in Israel, this school was open to him. So God established schools in Israel. We're going to see for two reasons. The first reason here was, if a youth 
was desiring to become a teacher in Israel to learn more of the deep truths of God and study, you know, under, a, you remember the schools of the prophets in, in the book of Kings, they were known as the sons of prophets, sons of the prophets. They would study under Elisha and they would have this, this uh, experience of, of, of studying deeper into the mysteries of God as a youth. That was one reason that God instituted the schools of the prophets. But we also read that the education centering in the family was that which prevailed back in the days of the patriarchs again, as we saw. And for the schools thus established, talking about home education, Jacob and his 12 sons, and you remember the stories in my Bible, friends, about Joseph and Benjamin, you know, weaving the, the coats, and of course, in your, in your Bible, the story of that family under Jacob. It says, those schools, for the schools thus established, the home school, God provided the conditions most favorable for the development of character. So his Eden plan, his model of home education was most favorable for the development of character. And we read that no devising of men has ever improved upon this plan. The men who held fast God's principles of life dwelt among the fields and hills. They were tillers of the soil, keepers of the flocks and herds. And in this free, independent life, with its opportunities for labor and study and meditation, they learned of God and taught their children of his works and ways. This was the method of education that God desired to establish in Israel. So God's going, this is the ideal, this is the best this is the Eden plan. The patriarchs are doing a great job at it. And then we're getting into the time of Israel, meaning after captivity in Egypt, they're taken out into the promised land and God's wanting to, desiring to establish and continue this home education program. But it's kind of like as you're reading the story through the book Education, it's this discordant note of oh, what happened to disrupt this plan. It was says when brought out of Egypt, there were among the Israelites few prepared to be workers together with him in the training of their children. So what did the Lord do? Well, in, many very, in very many households, the training appointed by heaven and the characters thus developed were alike rare. Fathers and mothers in Israel were, became indifferent to their obligation to God, indifferent to their obligation to their children. Through unfaithfulness in the home and idolatrous influences without, many of the Hebrew youth received an education differing widely from that which God had planned for them. They learned the ways of the heathen. So when you've got an unfaithful nation teaching their children infidelity, God's saying, we've got to do something here. And so to meet this growing evil, God provided other agencies. Samuel, by the Lord's direction, established the schools of the prophets. And the schools of the prophets were instituted, in this case, to meet the growing evil of parents not properly home educating their children. God's original plan was not able to be put in place in this context. The parents needed help. And so the Lord brought the schools of the prophets to meet the growing evil of failing home education in the case of an unfaithful nation. Now that's... Uh, that, that, that's Two reasons why God established the schools of the prophets. One, to meet the growing evil of parents not home educating. And then the second was the, uh, if the youth wanted to study deeper and become a teacher in, the, in, in Israel. Now let's fast forward in the history to the New Testament times, okay? So that was Israel. Now on to Jesus' time. What kind of education did Jesus get? It says, as a little child, he was daily at his mother's knee taught from the schools, the scrolls of the prophets. 
Isn't that a wonderful picture of Mary opening the word of God unto the, the boy Jesus and his mind comprehending these, these infinitely huge truths that, that he's growing in his understanding of as a child? What an amazing, amazing experience. Jesus followed the divine plan of education, which you know what that is if you've read the previous parts in the book Education. You know what that divine plan was. The schools of his time, uh, with their magnifying of things small and their belittling of things great, he did not seek. What did he do? His education was gained directly from the heaven-appointed sources. The heaven-appointed sources of true education. You ready for your curriculum? Here's, and this is for all of us, by the way. It's not just for kids. Here are the, the heaven-appointed sources of true education. From useful work, from the study of the scriptures and of nature, and from the experiences of life, God's lesson books. What a beautifully simple yet so deep and vast and profound and all-consuming way to view education. It totally challenges the way that I used to view it. I'm like, wait a minute, that can't be. You know, I've got to have some brilliant, you know, master's degrees ideas about what we should be doing and the curricular standards and all of this. Jesus learned from heaven-appointed sources. And of course, you need to have expectations of where you're going in a direction of what you want to teach. But here you have it's boiled down to its ultimate core, the study of the scriptures, useful work, the study of nature, and the experiences of daily life. Now, we have 1872. I'm going to go way forward into the future now, okay? The Advent movement began in 1844, before 1844, but 1844 is that key hinge point in the history of redemption. And by 1872, the Lord had taken issue with our people on a number of different things along the way, and we were growing in our understanding. 1872 was a big year, because this was the year that the first testimony on True education was written. And you might say, well, if God's ideal plan and his program was home education, why give a vision to his last day's people to establish schools? Take a look at these quotes about us now. So we've heard the history. Now these quotes are directly toward our people in the 19th century and us today. It says, the necessity of establishing such schools is urged upon me very strongly because of, take a guess, why do you suppose, I'll bet you it's one of those two reasons, same thing in Israel, the, the, the necessity of establishing such schools is urged upon me very strongly because of the cruel neglect of many parents properly to educate their children in the home. Does that sound familiar? We're, we kind of repeated the history of Israel here, didn't we? Uh, we're, we're failing, we're struggling, and the Lord's like, we got we to bring in a stopgap measure. We got to bring in a safety net. We've got to help. We've got a new pro, another program to augment, to, to, to be an addition to what folks are really struggling with. Cruel neglect of many parents to properly educate their children in the home is the reason, one of the reasons, that the Seventh-day Adventist schools were, told, were, were founded and why the Lord instructed us to do that. Schools should be established. 
And it's not just any schools, though. When, when I say the word school, I, I almost feel like I need to like dial back and go, you know, redefine the word because we have our own, you know, socially conditioned views from the culture around us and the world around us on what school looks like and on what that word means. When God says education and God says schools, it means something drastically different from what the world means by the word. So what are, what are we talking about here in the Adventist setting? It says schools should be established with teachers who will adopt the same plans that were followed in the schools of the prophets. So same thing has happened in Israel, we're going to do. And that wasn't just any old school. That wasn't any old, you know, normal way of doing education as the culture dictates. No, the schools of the prophets that we are to model after were pretty radically divergent from what you would know as school in our culture today in the, in the worldly school model. So let's take a look at what kind of school God had in mind. Now, we, you could spend a lot of time, okay, books and books and books. The stack is awesome, okay, but I'm not going to obviously quote everything in there. I got four hours on it, and I tried to boil it all down, and we're boiling the four-hour version down to one hour today. So but these are just some highlights, okay? We've got a beautiful bu- blueprint with so many different features and so many different facets of what Adventist true education looks like, comparing and contrasting that with the world and how different we are to be, and it's an exciting journey to go through all those quotes, and you can watch it on the full DVD set, but right now I want to bring out one very, very, very important point that is ultra neglected by, I had never heard any discussion about this. And as I'm reading through it, I'm going, my eyes are bugging out of my head and my jaw is hitting the floor. I'm like, whoa, I get it. I didn't get it as a teacher for 11 years. The Lord is showing me. You ever find that experience where you have to have your viewpoint corrected and it's like this exciting thing? You're like, I was so wrong, but now I'm so excited to find some light here. So here's how it goes, Okay. Testimonies, volume 6, page 208. And for those listening to the MP3 and the audios, and you're not getting all the citations for all of these, uh, you know, of course, you can always pause it and, and Google it, but if you want to email me, I can send you the, the quotes and you can, you can have the citations. So scottritzema at gmail.com. Here's the, uh, here's the quote that's on the screen right now. Our schools should be as blank as possible. Now, I left the blank in there to get you thinking. What do you think might be in there? Now, you, you could, there, there's a lot of good things that you could put in there, right? I mean, as Christian as possible. You, know, you could put a million different wonderful adjectives in there. But interestingly, what surprised me is what is emphasized in not just this quote, but a number of them that we're going to see. It says our schools should be as home-like as possible. Huh, interesting. Now, let's, it's not just this one. Let's look at some others. They should be family schools where every student will receive special help from his teachers as the members of the family should receive help in the home. Now, by the way, you remember the schools of the prophets. What were the students called? The what of the prophets? The sons of the prophets. Ah, I'm starting to get this. It's a family concept, Right? As members of the family, the students should be under the, uh, the, the, teacher, the teachers. Our school homes, did you know that they used to board in homes in the, in the olden times of the Adventist pioneers? Our school homes have been established that as far as possible, A, home atmosphere may be provided. That probably wasn't very difficult to guess. But the quote goes on and it says, teachers who are placed in charge of these homes are to act as, what do you think? Yes, fathers and mothers showing an interest in the students, one and all, such as parents show in their children. When the youth come to our colleges, they should not be made to feel that they have come among strangers. They sh- there should be fathers and mothers in Israel who will watch for their souls. 
Parents, guardians, place your children in training schools where the influences are similar to those of a rightly conducted, take a guess, home school. Now, that's a modern term that wasn't used so much back then. The homeschool movement is a modern phenomenon that's really mimicking what took place in the olden times. We'll talk about that more in a moment. But it's interesting to see the term show up, you know, 100 years ahead of its time, saying, If you're going to have a school, it needs to be like the schools of the prophets. It needs to be as home-like as possible, but not just like any home, not like a dysfunctional home. It needs to be like a rightly conducted home school. That's going to be true education. And as I was thinking about this, I I, I was thinking about it as an analogy of uh, vitamins, okay? Let's say, for example, that you are vitamin D deficient, okay? If you're deficient in vitamin D, your vitamin D levels are low, do you go to the health food store as quick as you can to pick up a vitamin C supplement and take vitamin C? No, that would be silly. That would be not making any sense, right? Well, it's the same thing. If we are home deficient, if our home education in Israel or in 1872 was not functioning very well and the Lord's like, we're going to bring in something to help out, is that thing that the Lord brings in going to be drastically different from a rightly conducted home or is it going to mimic a good home, right? So this idea that I had my whole life that, that there's home and then there's the school thing and the school concept has a totally different framework to it and it just doesn't feel at all like the home and it's just this new entity, this new creature that's been invented. That's not what we have here. The schools of the prophets were to mimic a good home education, a good rightly conducted homeschool, as is said in Child Guidance, page 303, where the spiritual atmosphere is a savor of life unto life. So our schools should be as home-like as possible. Now that's a number of like blatant statements that we just saw that say, make your schools home-like and all of that that we just saw. But then as you start to look at the features of the blueprints, this is Adventist jargon. We call the, 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 the type of educational model that we've been given. Our educational philosophy is often referred to as the, the, blueprint, the blueprint for how to do education. Once you start looking at those features, and we're not going to be able to go over them all, but we'll look at some of them, you'll go, oh, I see how that's mimicking the home. Oh, I see how, okay, so we're going to go through a few of those, and this whole picture becomes so beautifully clear. I was so excited as I was studying through this. It's just like, wow, as a teacher, just, man, everything I did was wrong. (laughs) This is counsels to parents, teachers, and students. 2.11, our teachers should not think that their work ends with giving instruction from books. Several hours each day should be devoted to working with the students in some line of manual training. In no case should this be neglected. Oops. That was convicting to teacher Mr. Scott Ritzema because I, I, you never would have seen me doing that. You know, I was like Mr. Book Nerd, like just, just keep me with the academic stuff and all the practical stuff is like the most scary thing on earth for me to actually try and do. And so uh, when I read this, I'm like... Oh, it's kind of, you know, that's, that's going to really challenge my, uh, my view of what it means to be a teacher. Uh, several hours each day in work with the students in some line of manual training. In no case should this be neglected. By the way, in, in, uh, in the schools of the prophets, what is the most famous story? There's a hint on the screen if you've ever read the My Bible Friends to your children. What's the most famous story about Elisha and his students? They're, they're chopping down trees, right? Isn't that something, right? They're building their own buildings and... So, boy, 
I'll tell you that, that when I read that, I, I start coming across the other quotations that say like it's supposed to be 50%, half of our experience should be mental versus manual, and I'm like, that's totally, totally different than anything I've ever thought or done or imagined, but as weird as it sounds, as, as countercultural as it is, and as challenging as that might be to my status quo, I have to say, Lord, you know what you're talking about, and I've got to follow your program, not my ideas, because that's going to fail epically every time if I follow my own ideas. But let's look at some more statements here. Uh, it says, teachers often fail of coming into sufficiently into social relation with their students. I shared uh, with their pupils, I shared with the folks yesterday that, you know, I would teach 120 students and I'd hardly get to know any of them, right? They'd file in and out of my classroom in 50-minute blocks and 20 to 30 of them at a time. And, you know, we'd have good discussions and I, I enjoyed being a teacher, but really there wasn't that relational, like, familial connection at all. Teachers often fail of coming sufficiently into social relation with their pupils. In some schools, the teacher is always with his pupils in their hours of recreation, he unites in their pursuits, accompanies them in their excursions, and seems to make himself one with them. That's a beautiful picture, one with them. Well, would it be for our schools, and by the way, our homes too, this is, this is the same blueprint whether it's home or school, well, would it be for our schools or homes for, were this practice more generally followed, being with the children and the youth all the time? What a wonderful lesson to bond hearts and to make your influence and your teaching really reach down deep because there's that relational love connection, one-to-one social relation. That, that's that's, a, that's a, a beautiful picture that we've seen there of God himself because God is three, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And when he created Adam and Eve, he said first he created Adam and he says it's not good for man to be alone. And then he makes a helper suitable for him. And then he builds this thing called a family. And this is a message in the ongoing great controversy with the onlooking universe wondering about the character of God. And so they're learning about God's character by observing a well-conducted home setting with the family. And what a privilege we have as families and, or in, in a school setting, in a school of the prophets setting. Oh, man, big, big picture stuff. But how about some more of these uh, features of the blueprint? Students need to become familiar with the duties of daily life. They should be taught to do their domestic duties thoroughly. And Domestic duties? Is this an education book or is this a parenting book? This is, uh, this is six testimonies, but it's, it's about students in the school. Domestic duties thoroughly and well. And no more study should be taken than can be attended to without neglecting to household duties. So this has got to be like in my curricular framework as a, my teacher mind going, okay, what kind of things do we want to make sure the kids walk away with in home or school? Okay, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we have social relation with them, that we're doing manual trades and labor and fixing and building things and growing things and, you know, we're, we're digging our hands in the soil and getting the shovels and the hose and all of that, you know, all of those manual things and domestic duties. Okay, so this is, this is part of my curriculum now as a dad thinking about this with my own kids. If need be, oh, I love this quote, if need be, a young woman can dispense with a knowledge of French and algebra or even the piano. Don't you like the order there? It's like the piano is the one that gets even the piano. <laughs> so she can dispense with a knowledge of French and algebra or even the piano. But it is indispensable that she learn to make good bread. Now, the first time I read that, I kind of laughed too because I'm like, well, this is this is so different than everything I've thought before. I, it's just 
This is serious though. I mean, it's like practical health message, cooking, kitchen, domestic duties, manual, all the social connection, all of this is what it means to have a connection as in a family. Have you noticed, by the way, all these features of the blueprint that we've seen so far are very, very, very much like a well-conducted home school. And that's what homes are like. Parents are with their children all the time. They're doing work together. They're doing these kinds of things. And then it says, and to perform efficiently the many duties that pertain to homemaking. It goes on and describes a bunch of them. Boys as well as girls, just in case you were like, wait a minute, what is this sexist stuff about the young ladies should learn to make good bread? No, boys as well as girls should gain a knowledge of household duties. And girls could learn to use the saw and the hammer as well as the rake and the hoe. Well, there you go. This is, this is uh, truly ahead of its time in terms of making, uh, making all of the youth be able to have various practical skills. There can be no employment more important than that of housework. To cook well, to place wholesome food upon the table in an inviting manner requires intelligence and experience. It is the most important form of employment that we have, housework. Whether men or women, they should learn to mend, wash, and keep their own clothes in order. They should be able to cook their own meals. They should be familiar with agriculture and with mechanical pursuits. And by the way, I'm kind of preaching to myself on that one. I'm like, oh yeah, I gotta become familiar with mechanical pursuits. I feel very comfortable and at home uh, behind a book and uh, writing or you know, speaking and these kinds of uh, you know, academic things. But um, you know, this is a challenge for many of us who are still in process in true education and we're confronted with, wow, you know, we wanna become practical people, people that can do things, right? So what do, what do students carry with them when they leave school. So, so what do you want them to get out of an education, right? Have they been educated to be true fathers and mothers? Can they stand at the head of a family as wise instructors? The only education worthy of its name is that which leads young men and women to be Christ-like, which fits them to bear life's responsibilities, fits them to stand at the head of their families. Wow. So, okay, let's back up with that history and remind ourselves. God established home education as his original plan and ideal. Then home education was failing, so God established schools of the prophets. What is the purpose then? To end this cycle, right? To help them to have healthy, whole, well-functioning homes so that these youth come out of the schools with an understanding of what it means to run a household. That's what true education, one of the many facets, one of the very most important facets of true education. And how about this one? Of all the features of an education to be given in our school homes, the religious exercises, meaning speaking of morning and evening worship in the context, are the most important. So we're, we're mimicking, mimicking the home again in this quotation. And by the way, in, in, in uh, page 200 of the book Education, it talks about teaching the students how to have happy homes, how to, how to, have, how to have a happy family, how to have, host visitors well, and, and do these very practical and real things as we've seen already. Now, this one really uh, reminded me that, that, that a lot of what I had done was, was, was in error for many years as a teacher. The teacher should carefully study the disposition and character of his pupils, that he may adapt his teaching to their peculiar needs. <laughs> when you got 120 students, that's really hard to do, or even 80. So how many did Jesus have, by the way? 12. And he's Jesus. Okay. So I don't think I can handle 80 or 100. So we've got to study their disposition, their character. Each child is unique, right? Have you noticed the trends in the last century in school have been standardizing, standardizing, everybody having the exact same standard uh, schooling, 
and testing and all of that, when in reality every child is a unique image bearer of God with, with, with unique gifts and dispositions and character and developmental challenges or gifts, and, and, and they have creativity of their own. They're individuals, right? We want to help them to flourish and to blossom as image bearers of God with the power to think and to do, not merely to be reflectors of other men's program for them, which I, I, I really you know, regret. I uh, wish I could go back and do more of that. So I guess I teach about it now. <laughs> Let the older assist the younger, the strong, the weak. But wait a minute. In a lot of the schools that I taught in, the big schools especially, the public schools, there would be like tracks of, you know, the students that are in this, this you know, track, that track, and, and they would never associate because we have, you know, this idea of, of segregating them out into their different categories. But Education 285 says the older and the younger and the strong and the weak are working together. The older and the younger, but don't we age segregate? This is just what we do in our culture. The seven-year-olds are in class with the seven-year-olds. The 11-year-olds are in class with the 11-year-olds. And you don't really have a whole lot of interaction with people of various ages. Not God's plan. How many families have 25 11-year-olds? Right? And we're trying to mimic the home here. So this is not going to be the best model if we have it that way. So let the older assist the younger, the strong, the weak. In the first disciples was presented a marked diversity. Jesus made sure that he had 12 of various dispositions and ages for that matter. I mentioned yesterday, you know, Peter and Andrew, they were brothers, different ages, right? And the same class, if you will, under Jesus' school of the prophets. The dangers of the young are greatly increased as they are thrown into a society of a large number of their own age. So if we have a large number of their own age, who's going to be teaching them? Not really the teacher, uh, you know, in terms of really getting close to them and really influencing them. You can have some influence, but if you've got vast quantities of, of, of children and youth, like I had, um, and then they're away from their parents, it's like really the education is being gained from peers more at that point, peers in the media. And so we want to really try to become close to the children and keep them in a, in a more natural, real setting than some what, what, what the culture gives us as the artificial, manufactured version that we call modern schooling. Testimony 6.172 says, Here in the school homes, students are daily surrounded by opportunities which, if improved, will greatly aid in developing the social traits of character. Now notice it says they will develop social skills, in what kind of setting? By, by sitting in desk with, in a room with everybody their own age, with a teacher at the front, and then, you know, you don't... That, that's not really the best for social skills development. What we read here is it's in the school homes because it's a home-like setting that God created for optimum social development. When God created that Eden plan, and he said home education, and it's going to work great, and then it works great with the patriarchs, and he's like cheering it on, this is his thing. Did, did he forget that, oh, they weren't properly socialized? I mean, did God make a mistake on that? Did he say, oh, I forgot. They're supposed to go to like the, uh, the, the, the banquets and the football games and the homecoming in order to get proper socialization? I mean, that's not something, of course, that our Lord, who is all-knowing, overlooked. He knows what's the best way to bring social development for children in the school homes, mimicking a home where they're boarding there in homes. They are going to improve and develop their social traits of character. Now, of course, during the time of Israel, it was in ordinary life. The family was both the church and the school, and the parents being the instructors in secular and religious lines. But notice this for social development. It says three times a year, Seasons were appointed for social intercourse and worship. So they were to go to the festivals, to the feasts, right? Kind of like we're doing right now, right? At camp meeting. And so this was part of God's program to have family-centered education 
where, where you got various ages interacting together and you got you know, people in your community and so on, but, but, but mainly the, the, the family cell unit then goes to the wider social setting in the festival of, 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 the, of the Jews, like tabernacles and so on and so forth. So, um, by the way, many people have said that, that, that they, they doubt God's original blueprint of, of, of home education because they say, you know, that, that, that homeschoolers are awkward and, you know, they're, they're socially weird and they're not socialized properly. And, you know, I grew up in the 1980s and I'll, 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 I'll agree that a lot of the homeschoolers that I knew back then, um, they, they were kind of that way. But then as I've traveled around in the, the more modern wave of, you know, sort of like this huge, massive movement called home education in our culture today, um, I, I meet homeschoolers throughout the country, different, different, different ages, different cultures, different walks of life, different socioeconomic backgrounds. And I, I, I've started a little game with myself where I, I notice when I meet a family, I, I can tell who is coming from a well-conducted homeschool. And I say well-conducted because that's, that's an important disclaimer uh, the idea of, you know, spurning the public schools. You heard last session from yesterday, and you're like, oh my goodness, this is horrible. We need to get our children out of the worldly public schools because they're indoctrinating the children with all these false worldviews. Let's take them home and have them play video games all day. Is that a good plan? No. <laughs> so a rightly conducted home school is what we're talking about here. But I'll meet these kids, and I started a little game with myself where I would guess, are you homeschooled? And I started to get it correct so many times that I'm like, wow, this is kind of fun. And not because I have some special insight at all. The, the kids stood out. And in, in what, the, what I noted about them was not their academic achievement or anything like that. What, 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 what I noticed was different about them compared to their schooled counterparts and in, in, in students and kids that I've been hanging around with for, for in, the, in the teaching profession. These, these homeschooled kids, on average, were, 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 had more social skills. They were better, better able to interact with an adult and to look them in the eyes and so on and so forth. And so just approaching, uh, and the family is together and, you know, well-behaved and stuff like that. And so I, I've been keeping track. I'm up to 51 out of 52. I got one wrong. It was kind of awkward. It's like, are you homeschooled? No. <laughs> but, but most of the time they're like, yeah, how did you know? Like, that's kind of crazy that you just guessed that. And, well, they stand out in a good way socially. And you'd be like, well, then why were they weird in the 1980s? Right? It's like, I don't know. Maybe because the people, and by the way, if you were homeschooled in the 80s, I'm not saying universally everybody. I'm not calling you weird, but just like two out of the three that I knew were, it's kind of a stereotype that's out there, right? That they're not properly socialized. Uh, but um, at that time, this was very cutting edge. You kind of had to be pretty radical. In some cases, it was illegal. And so there were some pretty peculiar, like radical-minded people who were willing to be different. And sometimes people who are of that mindset are a little bit different. And you might say, they might use negative words to describe that, but I admire it. I think it's a great thing. And um, today, it's really, really, really working. And, and, and the, fruit, the proof is in the pudding. They did a study on socialization and social skills with um, homeschooled kids versus public schooled kids. And the public school kids were, were, were much lower than the, than the homeschooled. And by the way, if you're public schooled in here, I'm not trying to slam anybody either, but you know, there are varying degrees of, of what can be better, right? And everybody's moving in that direction of what does the Lord want me to do next to grow in my relationship with him? And he presents this ideal, and I know this can kind of sometimes be overwhelming, like, man, this blueprint is intense. This takes some radical, radical changes. I can't handle this all, right? So, so ask the Lord, okay, what steps shall I take today to more 
pattern my life and my home after your plan. And he'll take you step by step. But today we're, going to, we're, we're taking a look at the whole picture. So how do we develop social skills? Number one, in the, home, in the uh, school home, if it's a, if it's a um, school setting. And of course in the home, if it's a home school setting. But here's another one. During their school life, as they handle these books, I was talking about canvassing and, and, and selling Christ Object Lessons and Ministry of Healing, they may learn how to approach people courteously and how to exercise tact in conversing with them on different points of present truth. So that's a really cool thing, to incorporate a canvassing program in your, in your educational uh, curriculum, if you will, to, to develop that ministry-mindedness and that outreach-mindedness. It's also a good way to teach them to handle money, to, to do you know, effective sales, and, and most importantly, or most importantly, to win souls. But in this quote, the idea is to help them to converse with people and interact with tact and courtesy. So um, what about those things like, you know, your socials and your football games and all of that? These are things that are cited by many people. Uh, you know, if I were to put my kids in one of those small school of the prophets type of schools, or if I were to homeschool my kid, then I would end up, you know, they would miss out on, you know, the, the, the what do you call that? The homecoming dance and all of these things, right? And all of these worldly things. It's like, Every child must have these experiences or they will like be less human somehow. No way. Let's take a look at what the Lord has shown us about, these, about how to interact in, in, in settings with other youth. Gatherings for social intercourse may be in the highest degree profitable and instructive when, here's the uh, conditions, okay, for a good positive social engagement among youth. When those who meet together have the love of God glowing in their hearts, when they meet to exchange thoughts in regard to the word of God or to consider methods of advancing his work and doing good to their fellow men. I've seen some wonderful situations like that where that is the case with youth. And that's exciting and thrilling and inspiring to me. And I look to some of those youth, I'm like, man, I look up to you guys. I mean, this is just, you just, you just get me fired up about the, about the work of the Lord. But then many times, many, 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 many times in our culture, you get gatherings of youth separated out from their families, separated out from any adult peer, uh, mentorship influence, and it becomes degraded and it becomes negative and it becomes dirty jokes and entertainment oriented and, and making fun of people and just all these horrible things that you, that you witness or maybe you, you don't and you'd kind of be glad you don't. But in contemplation, of the word, their hearts burn within them, as did the hearts of the two disciples as they went to, to Emmaus and Christ walked with them, by the way, and opened his scriptures concerning himself. So that's a beautiful thing. By the way, if you want to read what not to do in terms of uh, social engagement with, with, with the youth, read Counsels to Parents, Teachers, and Students, the, the abbreviation is CT, um, pages 347 to 351. It's a sobering read. It talks about uh, you know, parties of pleasure and various things that are, that, that are referred to as Satan's banquet, really Satan's banquet, trifling conversation instead of prayer and talk of spiritual things. They says Jesus is not even an honored guest at these places, but Satan presides, and that there's mere vanity, there's meaninglessness, there's, it's empty, that there's a pride of dress, and there's music that makes the angels weep, and there's lots of energy and laughter, but that is inspired by Satan. It's a really sobering read those few pages. Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 347 to 351. I don't have time to do all the quotes right now. But um, anyway, that's the social program. So let's, let's sum up. Let's bullet point all of the features of the blueprint that we've seen. And there's like two plus more hours to talk about with how to really build our home education or our school of the prophets uh, way of doing true education. I don't have time to get into it all, so I'll just bullet point what we've seen so far. Our home Schools or our schools of the prophets are to be like a rightly conducted homeschool. 
They are to be family schools. They are teachers to act as fathers and mothers. The teachers are to spend several hours each day in manual labor with the students. Teachers are always to be with their students during their hours of recreation. Students are learning all the many domestic duties, indoor and outdoor. Students are learning how to be fathers and mothers themselves. Most importantly, the most important part of the school, part of the school day is family worship in, in, in the school setting, in the home school, or school home rather. The teacher has fewer students, gets to know each one of them very well, and students are with others of various ages, like a family, and students learn social skills through the home-like setting in the school home, through canvassing, through witnessing, through meeting to converse on religious themes. So have you seen how these, just these features of the blueprint all very, very clearly show us sort of the thesis statement that our schools are to be as home-like as possible? That was the giant light bulb that went off for me where I totally had to do a 180, a revolutionary revamping and re- revitalizing of how I view school and education as a teacher. That really, you're not, you're not doing this other thing. No, you're trying to do what was missing in the home and mimic the home like a vitamin D deficient person would need to get out into the sun and get some actual vitamin D. So there you go. Now, So, so just to sum up there, we have two options. Option one is God's original Eden plan his original home education plan. So as Seventh-day Adventist Christians, those who take these counsels and these books to be authoritative as a reflection of what God is, looking, is, is asking us to do, which, by the way, Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 6 is such an awesome text on this. It's like everything we've just read is a summation or is a distillation of this powerful, powerful credo of doing life together as a family. Deuteronomy 6 says that parents hide the words of God in your hearts and then talk about them with your children as you rise up as you lie down, as you walk beside the way. So we're doing life with our children, and we're really developing what God designed in the Garden of Eden model. He asked us to do the same. And so that's the first and best original plan that God had in mind. It's the way that the patriarchs did it, home education. It's the way that Jesus was educated, home education. And then the other option, for those who want to seek more deeply into the mysteries of God so that they can become teachers in Israel. And for those, when we see the cruel neglect of many families to to be able to do this and for folks that need some help. And that's not meant to be a slam on anybody, by the, by the way. It's just, it's reality. We all struggle, right? And so we have this other option available to us, the schools of the prophets, which you see are mimicking the home. So now you might say, well, well why does all of this really matter? If we're talking about education, aren't we just talking about the academic reading, writing, arithmetic. I mean, my kid can get that in a public school just as well as anywhere. And why do I need to worry about that? In fact, the public schools have better chemistry labs. And they're, you know, they got these big, you know, wonderful programs going on. Did I tell you yesterday? I think I did, but for those who weren't here, um, in, in, the, in the study called Cognitive Genesis, uh, they found that, that, that smaller Seventh-day Adventist schools actually outperform bigger, bigger Adventist schools on average, academically. Academically, so, you know, you don't have the the chemistry lab and all of the advantages that you might have in a big school, but you have the advantage of having, you know, more interaction with various ages, more detention probably by the teachers, right? So you have, you have a smaller, home, more home-like setting in that context. But, but this is not just about academics. When, 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 when you, I'm glad you came to this because many people would go, well, I don't want to go to a talk on education because, you know, well, I, I got my education, right? I graduated and moving on. And what, what is this? Why would this matter to me? <laughs> Education, our, our view of education has taken too low and too narrow of a range, we read, right? And so let's, let's go way, 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 way beyond this idea of just the reading, writing, arithmetic. Those are important. We've got to develop those. We've got to become thinkers through academic matters. But the ultimate goal of the raising and training these children is this. 
Our schools, and I would add our homes, are the Lord's special instrumentality to fit up the children and youth for missionary work. And we're, we're teaching that from day one. From the time that they're babies, we're showing them what it means to serve others, to, to be servants in God's kingdom and missionary laborers in his great last day's effort. So think about this for a second. If our, well, let, me, let me do it with a quote, okay? Why do we have such a lackluster, you know, uh, Laodicean generation that comes up without that missionary fervor? Take a look. It's because so many parents and teachers profess to believe in the Word of God while their lives deny its power, that the teaching of the Scriptures has no greater effect upon the youth. At times, the youth are brought to feel the power of the Word. They see the preciousness of the love of Christ. They see the beauty of His character, the possibility of a life given to His service. But, in contrast, they see the life of those who profess to revere God's precepts. That's sad. That's a sad, sad discouragement. Now, by the way, I want to say something really, really positive, though, on what God has in mind with this true education direction he has been taking us all along. Because the subtitle of this is how home education and schools of the prophets will produce the last generation. And and I mean that with every fiber of my being because of this quote, these uh, series of quotes. Watch this. In the training of his disciples, the Savior followed the system of education established at the beginning. The twelve first chosen formed the, take a guess, the family of Jesus. Jesus was mimicking the home. He's doing a home-like school here. They were with him in the house, at the table, in the closet, in the field. They accompanied him on his journeys, shared in his trials and hardships, and as much as in them was, entered into his work. Sometimes he taught them as they sat together on the mountainside, sometimes beside the sea or from the fisherman's boat, sometimes as they walked, beside, walked by the way. Now, Jesus ran this school of the prophets, if you will, this home-like school, and what were the results? Was he successful? Well, yeah, to every nation under heaven was the gospel carried in a single generation. Okay, well, what if we do the same? It says here, the presence of the same guide in the educational work today, capital G, guide, Jesus. The presence of Jesus in our educational work today, if we do what he did, it will produce the same results as of old. This is the end to which true education tends. This is the work that God designs it to accomplish I hope your view of education just got about 100,000 times bigger. Do you realize that if we get this thing right, if we raise up that generation of children and youth who are empowered, who are energized, who are converted, who are missionary-minded, then what we just read here is we will do the same thing that the disciples did. Those youth, Jesus had youth, right? Here we have the same possibility before us if we get this thing right. There's a proviso. So success in any life, demands a definite aim. Such an aim is set before the youth of today. The heaven-appointed purpose of giving the gospel to the world in this generation is the noblest that can appeal to any human being. Many a lad of today, growing up as did Daniel in his Judean home, or we may add, home-like school, studying God's word and his works, 
and learning the lessons of faithful service. So many a lad of today, just like Daniel, learning from God in his home setting, will yet stand in legislative assemblies, in halls of justice, or in royal courts as a witness for the king of kings. Millions upon millions have never so much as heard of God or of his love revealed in Christ. And it rests with us who have received the knowledge with our children to whom we may impart it, to answer their cry. Did you hear the part with our children? I'm coming to believe that in addition to the most important words, Jesus, God, Bible, Holy Spirit, the word with is perhaps one of the most profound words that has revolutionized the way that I view this whole thing about the children and the, and the youth. With our children to whom we may impart to the millions who have never so much as heard of God or his love revealed in Christ. Because our, our world is a scene of misery that we dare not even allow our thoughts to dwell upon. Did we realize it as it is, the burden would be too terrible. Yet God feels it all. Think about that. Every ounce of pain and suffering, our infinitely empathetic, sympathizing God feels every bit of pain and misery and suffering in this world. Wow. That's amazing. I apologize that this slide is so small. I see some people squinting. Email me. I'll send it to you. God feels all of it. The order to in order to destroy sin, destroy sin and its results, he gave his best beloved. And he has put it in our power through cooperation with him to bring this scene of misery to an end. Did you catch that? Sometimes we ask God, you're all loving and all powerful. How could you allow sin and misery and pain and suffering to continue on this earth? Why don't you bring an end to it? You know what? That, that, that big philosophical question that has perplexed the theologians for thousands of years? God's asking us that question. Why are you? you I've been put it in your power to finish the work. Why have you not hastened my coming yet? Reading on with the quote, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature is Christ's command to his followers, to all, great or small, learned or ignorant, old or young, with our children, right? The command is given. In view of this command, can we educate our sons and daughters for a life of respectable conventionality, a life professedly Christian, but lacking his self-sacrifice, a life on which the verdict of him who is truth must be, I know you not. Thousands are doing this. Thousands of people, through their example, through precept, are teaching the children and youth that what it means to be run-of-the-mill Laodicean cultural Adventist is to kind of warm the pew, go through the routines and the cultural expectations, but there's no fire in our belly to finish this work. And when they catch that vision or lack thereof, that picture, that distorted, watered-down vision of what it means to be God's last day's people, can you blame them? when they catch the Laodicean disease themselves from those who've passed it on to them. Thousands are teaching that being respectable and conventional is good enough. That is a tragic, tragic thing because there's a lot of sin and suffering. There are people passing into the grave, lost. And here we are asking ourselves, what must we do to receive that revival that we so desperately need? We've got to get on our knees and seek reformation. We're not going to have revival until we're willing to be reformed. Revival and reformation go hand in hand. Lord, what must we do 
to transform the way that we conduct our homes, our, our church culture, our school settings, and you name it, so that we have that view of things. I have to look in the mirror every day. This is not me up here preaching. I'm preaching to myself. May the Lord be speaking to each one of our hearts on this. But the story continues because for those who were here yesterday, for those who weren't, let me review a bit of it because this is absolutely amazing to see how everything that the devil was doing, God was countering. Everything you heard about the horrible, you know, worldly school that came about, it began in 1844, interesting date, right? So, so God and the devil are competing. Here you got two lines, two streams of history. 1844, the Day of Atonement begins, the, uh, the Great Disappointment, you have the formation of the Advent movement that became the Seventh-day Adventist Church. 1844, also the foundation of worldly universal public schooling according to Prussian model. Uh, I can't repeat all of that, but basically uh, a, a type of school that's not going to help children really flourish came to this land beginning in 1844. It took about 50 years really to start to take hold and then another 70 years to become universal. But 1844 is where that began. The prophet of modern schooling, we saw Wilhelm Wundt, right? So, so you have the prophet of God in the last days, the spirit of prophecy from about 18, late 1844 on to 1915, writing 200,000 pages. Wait a minute, that sounds kind of familiar. In this case, a counterfeit arose with the prophet of modern schooling writing many, many, many pages during that exact same time period. You had John Dewey saying that teachers are bringing in the kingdom of God. Wait a minute, you're talking about like an utopia, a utopian social experiment, bringing about a new social order. He's not talking about the true kingdom of God. We've got the true kingdom of God on the march in the Advent movement. The devil is countering that through the schools of the world. John Dewey was an was a educational philosopher saying through the schools we're doing this. Then you have spirit of prophecy countering the Prussian move, the worldly public schooling model that was coming in at the time, saying, wait a minute, what are we doing age segregating our students? There, as soon as we can find a better way to do something different, we're going to do that once we catch this view of what true education is. I apologize, I'm going through these kind of quickly. These are review from yesterday. If you missed that, the DVD called Schooled has all of these quotes on it. But, and undoctrinated, both of those have these on it actually some of them are on one some of them are on the other then you had the spirit of prophecy speaking out against other prussian education methods like having very young children like age five and six in 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 school already and not just in school but in school for as much as three to five hours per day and 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 and, and this was something that we are aghast at in education 207 the idea that young children would be in school for three to five hours per day prussian school was countered by the advent blueprint all along. Many parents have kept their children in school nearly the year round, we read in Christian education. This whole idea of this, this school year for early children, three to five hours a day with these young kids. By the way, something else as we see that history continuing. I'm going to follow up with what happened after yesterday. This is still review from yesterday. You remember 1872? This was the first testimony on true education that was given to our people. 1872 was also a time where the uh, power elites of the society were saying we need to stop the movement of true education and bring in Prussian education. And that was the 1872 first testimony on education. By the 1890s, remember the compulsory schooling laws were in place. Public schooling was becoming much more widespread so that virtually every state in the country had a law that children must go to school at an early age. And this became what we now know today as the, the, the mindset that we all have that we just kind of take that for granted. It's just the way the things work. That began in the 1890s. And also in the 1890s, one of my heroes, 
E.A. Sutherland had a, had a revival in Battle Creek. The church schools were then formed, as I said yesterday, and the purpose of this idea was these are missionary training institutions. These aren't just like schools that are going to mimic the world. What would be the point of that, right? I mean, the Lord has called us to a dramatically, diametrically, radically different version of true education. We almost need a new word for it. Every time I say education or school, I wish we had a new word for it. But here you go with the 1890s. God's countering the Prussian move with the formation of the Adventist church school system to raise up that army of youth that we just read about. Now, the rest of the story that I didn't get to yesterday goes like this. Prussian schooling made its march. Universal compulsory public schooling in America with its nefarious purposes and programs to do all the things we talked about yesterday. And for those who weren't there, you can see that unschooled. This whole movement had a ton of success. By the 1970s, virtually everybody in the country was bought into this idea of cradle to, you know, 18 uh, idea of, you know, early, early age five check-in and, and year-round long, long periods in the uh, clutches, a custody, whatever you want to call it, of the state in the public school system. By the 1970s, there were literally less than 10,000 people in the entire country that still had their children in the home. So you might call them homeschool. That, that concept really, the, the, the term, modern term homeschool was not popular at the time. But it kind of used to be the way that people defaulted to for thousands of years, right? In the early republic in America, just raising the children in the home. And, you know, you, you have uh, different ways and means by which they gain various different academic and practical skills and, and, and training and tutors and grandpa and mother and father. And, and you got... Um, uh, you know, uh, what do you call that when you apprentice, you know, apprenticeships and so on. That was the more traditional way of doing things. It changed by the 1890s. By the 1970s, we have a whole new way of living life, the whole new view of what it means to be a kid. You go to school and you're in school all day for your childhood. And that's just, get, that's kind of the way things went in the 1970s and 60s and 50s, building up. It reached its climax in the 70s with less than 10,000 people, less than 10,000 people still home educating their students. And then uh, a man came on the scene that I would say is probably the second most influential Seventh-day Adventist in our history. And I say that, I say probably the number one most influential, and I mean, by influential, I mean influential outside of the church, okay? John Harvey Kellogg, an innovator, ended up going rogue, and we don't like where he ended up, but he did so much, right, that, that, that people latched onto within the health community and so on, and it just revolutionized a lot of things, invented a bunch of stuff and, and the cereal and all that, like Kellogg, big name, right? But then the man on the screen, I would suggest, as a historian, I could be wrong, you can correct me on this, I'm not going to be dogmatic on the order, there may be some others that I'm forgetting, but when in, 19, in the late, late 1970s, when Dr. Raymond Moore be, went on the, uh, what was called the Focus on the Family radio program with James Dobson. He promoted in 1979 a very radical concept that at first Dobson was not uh, keen on. And, 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 and he actually came out and said, I know that almost nobody is doing this, but I've got some inside info from reading the book Education. He didn't say that, of course, but he, I know what the Lord has in mind. And his original plan and blueprint and program for home education is really, really awesome. And we've seen the degra degradation of the public schools and the indoctrination of humanism that's coming in. And you had the Dobsons and other people just up in arms and evangelical Christianity pulling their hair out going, what do we do? And they're forming Christian schools. And Dr. Raymond Moore gets on there and says, I've got an idea. He didn't come up with it, but he says, why don't we just keep our kids at home? 
Why don't we just have home education? Why don't we just teach our kids? It's like this radical, novel idea that people have been doing for thousands of years, right? Being a family. But, but to, to, at the time, it was, whoa, it was like illegal in most states, and it's this really, really you know, scary thing. But it really started to catch on. In the 1970s, he had already made his name known by being an advocate for delaying formal education because he read the book Education, and it says, well, I'll give you those quotes in a second, but uh, then, then when he got, he, was, he became the most visible and most celebrated homeschool leader in the nation. So he's the guy that launched the modern homeschool movement. So this, this thing that has like become so vast where there's like two million homeschoolers, or oh, more than that now, it's hard to keep track, but I mean, there's this massive movement within evangelical Christianity, and by the way, a lot of it has some incorrect theological strains of dominionism and, and, and bad, you know, end times theology, so you don't want to just like jump in bed with some, you know, uh, philosophy out there because it has some things correct. We want to go back to the Bible and follow the spirit of prophecy light that the Lord has given to us. But this is a great movement, I think. When, when people are coming out of the public schools and you see such success with this movement in general, let me share with you an um, interesting graphic. Actually, before I show you the graphic, more important, well, I'll show you the graphic, but, but th- this is academic success of homeschoolers outpacing the, uh, the, the median 89th percentile, 84th percentile. It's working. And by the way, their scores on standardized tests are, 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 are outranking the, the rest of the country irrespective of the educational, you know, um, prowess of the parents and whether they have teaching degrees and whether, you know, their socioeconomic status is high or not. No, it's just families committed to doing things that, that way are having tremendous success. But more importantly, they found in the research of homeschoolers that they actually, um, they inculcate, they, they adopt their parents' values at much higher rates than those who are in, in school. And which, that, was, that was really an encouraging thing to me because that was God's program. And I'm going, he was so right about that. But then um, the academic stuff's not nearly important, but there's an interesting study where they found GPAs at various different universities from homeschool graduates versus non-homeschool graduates. But um, th- th- all of this talk about home education, you might say, well, is this relevant you know, for us? Of course, we've got, we've got, we've got schools, right? And that, that is a wonderful thing that we have an alternative, two alternatives to the worldly public schools that are ruining minds and souls. And so I praise the Lord for that. In fact, um, th- this is relevant for all of us because... The children in the, in the home, when they're not at school, are being homeschooled, aren't they? It's like every Christian is a homeschool family, if you really think about it that way, because we're all educating our children in the afternoon and in the evening and all weekend and on vacations, right? So even if we're uh, having our, our kids in a school, we're still ultimately responsible. We're still the ones that God looks to as the primary educators for our children. And so in that respect, it is, it is relevant. And also, we ought to be delaying our formal education and not having age five um, getting into all these academic things and, and early reading and so on and so forth. It says in, in, uh, in, in the Spirit of Prophecy, the only schoolroom for children until age eight or ten years old years of age should be in the open air amid the opening flowers and nature's beautiful scenery. So the only schoolroom until age 8 or 10, the parents should be the only teachers of their children until they have reached age 8 or 10, 8 or 10 years of age. Mothers, let the little ones play in the open air. Let them listen to the songs of the birds and learn to lo- the love of God as expressed in his beautiful works. Teach them the simple lessons from the book of nature and the things about them. And as their minds expand, then lessons from books may be added and firmly fixed in the memory. So this kind of begs the question, then why would we even 
you know, open up uh, grades to, to, the, to the younger kids. And you might say, boy, you know, we're, we're not doing that right. But there's a little bit of history to this that why, why Adventist schools would, would allow enrollment for children under eight. There was a school, there were, there were a number of schools that were saying no children may be enrolled at all. And then what happened is uh, in Ellen White's own, own backyard, backyard in, in, in California, the, 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 the seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds were running around in a ruckus and, 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 and giving a bad example to uh, you know, unruly Adventist families. And so they had a, a, a meeting about this, and they said, what do we do about this? And so what she wrote was, mothers should be able to instruct their little ones wisely during the early years of childhood. If every mother were capable of doing this and would take time to teach her children the lessons they should learn in early life, then all the children could be kept in the homeschool until they are eight or nine or ten years old. In many homes, there is but little discipline, and the children are allowed to do as they please. Those who are unable to train their children aright should never have assumed the responsibility of parents, but because of their mistaken judgment, shall we make no effort to help their little ones to form right characters? Therefore, I, from the light that God has given me, declare that if there is a family that has not the capabilities of educating nor disciplining, nor, nor the discipline and government over their children, requiring obedience, that the very best thing is to put them in some place where they will be required to obey." So this idea of, of, of helping the children to learn obedience in a setting where, where, where we're, you know, a cruel neglect of many parents to do a well-conducted home school. So that was second, or third selected message. I think it's second selected messages, actually, 217. But um, then, then what kind of setting is that? I mean, are we jumping right into academics early then? Uh, because we have this counsel to say, you know, take these kids in, help them learn to obey, help them to learn discipline was the message there. So how about this? Here is a work that must be done for the families. This is the same, the same section. And for the children that are as old as seven years and eight years and nine years. So for the young kids who are coming in, who are, who are pre-academic age, here is the work that can be done for them. We could do the same as they have in Battle Creek. They took me from place to place in the orphan asylum where there were little children, little tables. There were little children from five years old and upward, and they were building or they were being educated on how to work and manage. They had a great pile of sand of a proper quality, and they were teaching the children how to work together, how to make Noah's Ark, and how to make the animals that enter into Noah's Ark. They were all doing this kind of work. So isn't that kind of a cool picture of like what you did in preschool, right? And so before you're of the academic age of, of, of really getting deeply into academic studies, you, 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 you may have a setting like this where, where children need to learn obedience and how to work together and you know, how, to, how to be human, <laughs> you know, how, to, how to have good behavior. And that kind of setting isn't, you know, let's just lay on the academics early on just like the world does. No, we're not going to go the Prussian way just because that's the way the world does. We want to go God's way. Now, we saw how the homeschools are outperforming the world. How about the Adventist schools? And, 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 and cognitive genesis found that academic achievement outpaces ability after three years within an Adventist school setting. So there's some, there's some success rate to be said there as well, just like you see among homeschoolers in our, in our country. So here's the, here's the quote that I really want to land on, because I know I brought up these two options, right? It's like you got home education and schools of the prophets, or home-like schools. And it's like these are God's two options that he has given to us, and they are to work hand in hand. We are to have both. And so many people will go, well, Scott, what should I do then? Well, you know, I'm not going to tell you. Let's look at this quote. Parents, make every effort in your power to place your children in the most favorable situation for the formation of the character that God wants them to form. 
So that pretty much sums it up. we got to take that to God. And as long as time shall last, we shall have need of schools. I want to emphasize that. You know, I've brought up this thing about the Eden model, and something that's not often talked about, and it might send somebody off on a fanatical direction and being, you know, anti any sort of, uh, you know, organizational school. And that's not what the Lord, the Lord says. We shall establish schools, and they, we need them till the end of time. But they are to be of a particular order. They're not to mimic after the worldly schools. So we do have a work of reformation to do as we always do, and as the person in the mirror each day does. Now, i got to share a quick story with you in closing here, because I know that, the, that this can, causes sometimes some like consternation and conflict between people, because they're like, there's like a competition mindset over these two, and I'm like, well, I want to promote both. I'm like enthusiastic about both. Home-like schools and home education, these are God's program and God's plan, and let, let's talk about both in a positive light. Like in Red Bluff, I love this, because many people would say, Scott, you know, if you talk about the, the Eden model, and home education, you know, that could, that could cause problems for, for a school. Well, in Red Bluff, I love this place. They said, they, I was going there to speak on uh, media and parenting and some other things, and, and they said um, half of the church homeschools and half goes to the school. And I was like, oh, no, this, there's going to be like, you know, this going on here uh, between the two groups. And I said, well, how does that relationship go? And they're like, oh, it's wonderful. The principal Oh, homeschooled her kids, and you know she's she's favorable to the idea, and she doesn't like you know go after that. You know, I used to do that as a teacher. I used to say, you know, we should get all the homeschool kids in the school because then our school culture will improve and and we'll be better. And I've repented of that, and I said, wait a minute, you know, both of these are God's plan, and, and you shouldn't try and drive people one direction or the other. And, and so this 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 principal didn't do that, and she was embracing of all, and um and and, and then the the homeschool families weren't like you know angry people, right? Like you know, fallen institutions, you know, this kind of talk. They, they were very supportive of this principle because she was making some radical reformation changes, taking the kids canvassing, we're going to get them manual labor and do these things. And I was so thrilled to talk to this principal and talk to these parents, and they're all so joyful. They're just happy people, right? And we need to be more like that. We need to be working together rather than feeling like it's a competitive thing. That's just my experience from seeing them. And so for those who are not directly connected with the school, you can help to make it a blessing by giving it your hearty support. Counsels to parents, teachers, and students. And there is no work more important, as we close, than the education of our youth. The church is asleep and does not realize the magnitude of the matter of educating the children and youth. God requires that the church arouse from her lethargy and see what is the manner of service demanded of her at this time of peril. The lambs of the flock must be fed. The Lord of heaven is looking on to see who is doing the work he would have done for the children and youth. As a church, as individuals, if we would stand clear in the judgment, we must make more liberal efforts for the training of our young people. Because if we get this thing right, if we do our home education and our schools in a home-like fashion, we will train up the final gospel workers of earth's history, and it is the army of youth that will go forth, not respectably conventional, but radically unconventional and radically obedient to God's gospel call that he has called each one of us to. So let us be, seek reformation individually. Seek the Lord's will for us individually. And if you're in that family situation and, and you know, you're in the public schools and you're going, Lord, how do we make things work? He will make the way, okay? He will make the way. You've got to step forward in faith, and he will follow through. 
All right? And, and you can't say, well, I've got to see all the you know, dominoes lined up before I can step forward. That's not faith. And if the Lord is calling us out of Babylon, we've got to come out of Babylon, right? And he's got two wonderful, beautiful options. And if we're going to do a home school, let's do it God's way. And if we're going to do a school, let's do it according to the home-like model that he's called us to with all the beautiful features of the blueprint. And let's not become angry critics, right? Let's not say, well, the school isn't doing this and that and become, you know, just, just rude and critical. Uh, there's, a, there's some the quotes that I left out. It's like, you know, you don't, you don't want to f- uh, enter into the feast of scandal and a bunch of different things like that. You can see that in the DVD undoctrinated because I'm five minutes over. But um, let's, let's joyfully uh, seek to upbuild, not tear down, and seek to reform and train these children for the Lord. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for your grace and goodness that you've been so patient with us all these years of, of, of struggling and, and muddling through our failures and our weaknesses. And we, we seek you now for strength. We can't find in our own selves an ability to take on such a, a high calling But we know that you have the power, and and every calling that you give to us is equally an enabling that you will empower where you call. And we thank you for that promise. We thank you for Jesus Christ and his soon coming. We thank you for his educational model that, that he was trained in in the home and that he did with his disciples. May we look to him as our example and do likewise. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.